0: Turn to the book of Habakkuk, and if you're like, okay, who's that? Uh, If you can find the beginning of your New Testament and go about 20 pages back into the Old Testament, you're going to probably run into him, okay? He's got three Ks in his name. He's probably the only person I know with three Ks, okay? While you're finding Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the situation of finding seats. Okay, I'm not speaking right now. I think everybody's found one with all the kids cleared up here, but... In Habakkuk, uh, we're going to encounter a, a very interesting individual. But I want to tell you first all about a situation that happened my family and I about a month ago. Uh, Karina is really good at finding some really good deals, if not free entertainment. And I think some of you know this, but about a month ago, there were two concert pianists that came to Waco. They're graduates from the Juilliard School of Music, uh, Greg Anderson, Elizabeth Joy Rowe. They actually made their way. They're going to do a free concert at the Ball Performing Arts Center, with these two Steinways, they're part of the Steinway Concert Series, and they got these two Steinways together. Uh, my wife showed me a little video of them on YouTube. Man, they're like—they had a flair of the dramatic. I mean, they just really could put on a show, and they had this free concert, so we decided we're going to go. So that Saturday evening, we're having dinner, and like, all right, kids, we're going to go to this concert. And I I take a look at my kids, and you're kind of seeing what they're wearing. I'm like, no, you know, we're going to go out into public, so you need to do an upgrade on your clothing style. Okay, so everybody goes and changes clothes a little bit. We're just slightly improved from where we were, ultra casual, and we make our way uh, all the way out to MCC campus. Now we're trying to get there real early because you know we're thinking it's going to fill up, Uh, as it would be. We get there about 15 minutes early, and sure enough, we walk in there, and the place is completely packed out. Okay. My first sign was there were people standing outside the door, and I'm like, oh, man, Karina, you know. And so we're standing up there. It's all packed out, like little sardines. We're standing up there. I'm like, I'm going to have to stand for this entire concert here. And then I noticed that on stage they were actually kind of putting some chairs up there. And I said, like, that's really unusual. never seen that before. And, and then one of these guys ushers the people from the top to come down. I'm like thinking, no way, we're not going. But I look, and they're my kids. They're going down the stairs. I'm like, whoa, okay, I guess we are. You know, So we're like going there. And I'm seeing different folks that I know, folks from the church here. You're waving to me like, oh, this is a bad situation. Hopefully they got some seats up front. Oh, no, they are, they're motioning to come up on the stage. Oh, great. So my kids go up there, and of course, you know, we're the parents. we got to follow through. We're up there. And they get this first section, and they got them, like, within three feet of this grand piano. And I'm like, oh, man, we need to be far in the back. Well, that section fills up. We are next. They point to us to go to the other side, and there's this, these rows of chairs, and we are sitting in the very front row, right three feet away from where the concert pianist is going to do his thing. And I'm sitting down, I'm somewhat in shock, like, how do these things happen to me? I'm like, oh no, this is terrible. And I noticed that my youngest is sitting at the end, like, that is not gonna work, okay? So we're like, I switched seats with him. In fact, we even have a picture of this. Uh, there it is, there we are, okay? <laughs> it was, uh, it was fabulous. There I am at the end, I'm on my, my best behavior. And I tell you what, I, it was fascinating see their hands in action, the timing, just the expressions. I mean, every breath, I could tell if they had freckles on their fingers. I'm watching everything, and they're, they're just getting started, and I'm just kind of in awe, and then I hear a sound that I've, I've heard before. It's, it's the sound of when your children are sick, and I hear this splattering sound on the floor. I quickly look at my kids. Everything seems to be fine, but I look behind there, behind that piano, and uh, there's these faces like... And you could tell something's going on. And next thing you know, there's dad picks up his kid and hauls this child off there. And I can tell by the reactions that something really nasty is back there. And the piano players are playing like, you know, and I'm like, I'm sitting up there trying to be on my best behavior. And like, what in the world is going on? I can. And finally, they end their first movement. And he kind of gets up, you know, like, oh, this is going to be good. And they kind of stand up like, oh, we're a little distracted. You're kidding me. Right. You know. And, and they said, you know, they have not used to having people so close. And they said, you know, we're going to step off stage here for a little bit. And I'm thinking, welcome to Waco, you know. <laughs> we love your music, can't you tell? You know, when we're getting sick. So they clean this up, and I'm just like, oh, and I'm sitting up there the entire time. And then they come back, and, you know, the show goes on. And I was, it was just fascinating to see how good they were. I've been to other concerts before, and I've heard live music. I've even seen concert pianists. But I've never been up there where can just see their fingers flying and the exact precision. I tell you that because I was up close and personal. I got to see it with my own eyes. When you come to the book of Habakkuk, you get a glimpse of the inner workings of God. It's like he pulls back the veil that has oftentimes closed to humanity. And you can actually see him in action. You see what is going about to take place. You see his sovereignty, his precision, his greatness, his grandeur, his majesty. And that is especially true when you come to Habakkuk. In the book of Habakkuk, it's written about 606, 604 B.C. Habakkuk had lived in the best of times under King Josiah and all the spiritual reforms and the great revival that takes place in Israel, all the way to King Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, who was evil and totally wrecked everything that his dad did. And as go the leaders, so go the people. And when you've got leaders that are going in the wrong direction, so go the people. And God, in response to Habakkuk's prayer, please, God, do something about our, the people of Judah. They totally despise you. Your law is paralyzed. No one could care, could care less about you or your word. God tells him in chapter 1, like we saw last week, I am going to address it. In fact, I'm going to do something that is going to blow your mind, even if I told you you're not going to be able to believe it. I'm going to send the Chaldeans The Babylonians, this uprising start that became the world superpower. I'm going to bring them into Judah, and I am going to discipline my people. I am literally going to destroy Judah, and I'm going to use the wicked Babylonians to do it. Well, this threw uh, Habakkuk into a major perplexion, like, God, how could you use someone far more wicked than us to correct our problems? And he's praying, and he's asking God, how in the world can you do it? And that's where we come to chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk is waiting to see what will God do. And so he says, chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. He says, I am going to be like the watchman on the wall. And that's what these guards would do. They went to the very highest point of the wall, and their job was to look at any, for any oncoming advancements of an enemy. And then to inform and warn the people. And so he's not literally up on the wall, but this is the position of his heart. He's like, I am waiting expectantly, God, to hear how you're going to respond to my plea before you. Because I am a prophet, and my job is to proclaim your word to the people. And they're not going to take too kindly when I say that the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, are going to come in here and destroy Judah. So you tell me how I'm supposed to respond to these people. And so that's what we find him. He's saying, I am waiting to find out how I'm supposed to reply. And then verse 2, God speaks. Look at this. You see the revelation of a sovereign God. Then the Lord, literally Yahweh, his personal name, this self-existent one, I am, answered me and said, Habakkuk, I want you to record The vision, which is really interesting. Most of the time, God told his prophets, I want you to proclaim it. I want you to tell people. He says, no, this is a conversation between me and you, very different than all the other prophets. I want you to write this down, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. And that's exactly what they would do. When you had a message that you were declaring to a, a city or a community or a town, it was inscribed on clay tablets, sometimes stone, generally clay, and it was placed in positions of prominence in the marketplace, in major areas of traffic, so that people could see it and respond. They didn't have newspapers, iPhones weren't existent quite yet—I think that comes a few years later, okay—and they didn't have means of communicating like we norm- normally associate with today. But you put these clay tablets in a prominent spot, and that said the message. God says, I want everyone to know so that when the messengers see it, they can literally run throughout Judah and proclaim, this is what's going to happen. He says, verse 3, For the vision is yet for an appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail, though it tarries. Wait for it, for it will certainly come, and it will not delay. What God is saying here is, I am the one who is completely in control. I'm in control of the history, of history, of the present, End of the future. He says, I'm the one who's following, I'm following a divine plan that I've set in place. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. And it will happen precisely on my timing. That's exactly what he's saying in verse 3. And so, when, after he says this, then comes the central message of the book. And there are many people think that this is the actual central message of the entire Bible. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Look at it. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The proud one, the Babylonians, they were extremely proud of all of their economic might, all of the buildings and their fascinating cities and their military power. They literally destroyed people, just like we saw in chapter 1. They just kind of went through like a threshing sled and just slaughtered all these people. And they were an extremely proud, prideful, arrogant people. And so he says, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Do you know how you can live and have royal relationship with God? It only comes by faith. Faith is not a one-time act. Faith is an ongoing lifestyle. Some people think like, yeah, like you ask, are you a Christian? Yeah, I believe. And what do you believe? And they believe certain facts about God. But that's not true faith. Faith is not just an intellectual assent to certain facts, like facts that Jesus died and rose again, lived a perfect life. Guess what? The demons believe those things and they shudder. True faith not only understands and believes those truths, but their life reflects a response to a holy God. It reflects a response of joy and obedience. That is what true faith is. If you are in the situation where, yeah, I believe certain facts about Jesus, but you truly are not trusting in him as the person of God, you don't follow him, or you only follow him when it's convenient to do so, i.e. Sunday morning, then, friends, you probably don't have biblical faith. Faith is taking God at his word. Faith is putting your true trust, your significance, your security and identity in him. But the proud individual, he'll never do that. Faith is taking God at his word. Now, it's not some sort of fatalistic resignation like, well, God's just going to do whatever. And so I just resign myself. But rather, it's a resolution to trust in the Lord, even when we do not know or understand his ways. That is where true faith comes into motion. It's one thing to trust in God when everything's kind of zipping along the way you think it should roll. It's a completely different thing when you trust in God and you're meeting great adversity in life and yet you keep on trusting in him. In fact, the times where you can't even sense God's presence and you are still holding on and believing in Christ, that is true faith. And what happens when you have a sincere faith that you actually learn to resolve the mysteries of life by the mystery of of God. It's kind of like this. When we come to the things that we don't know in life, if you are living by faith, you fall back to that which you do know, that you do know about God and his character and who he is. It's kind of like, you know, those tapestry that we talked about last time. On one side, it's a bunch of jumbled up strings and all these knots and like this looks like a huge mess. That's what life looks like oftentimes on this side of eternity, doesn't it? I don't understand how this is going to work. This is a huge knot. This is killing me. This is terrible. Look what's happening to these people. But on the other side of that tapestry is an image and a display of the glory and the majesty and the significance and the sovereignty of God. And one day, even though right now we see dimly, we will one day see with very clear eyes God has accomplished fully his work. You see, we really live when we live by faith. Do you want life? I'm not just talking physical life. I'm talking, do you want genuine spiritual life? It comes by living by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. The Babylonians, however, guess what? They're not living by faith in the one true God, Yahweh. Absolutely not. They could care less about him. In fact, they, don't even, they never acknowledge him. The Babylonians, they were puffed up in their military pride and all their great accomplishments, In fact, you can find out the arrogant attitude of the Babylonians like in the book of Daniel. Daniel is one of those guys in 586 BC when Babylon does come in and totally destroys Judah. They start hauling off exiles. The first time they did this, they hauled off the cream of the crop, the very best of the kids, and they hauled them off because they're going to brainwash them. And one of those guys was Daniel and some of his friends. And Daniel records some of these interchanges. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon and this empire... You can find in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, he says this. The king reflected and said, and he's standing on top of one of these great walls in Babylon. Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? It's all about me. Look what I have done. Well, if you uh, keep reading, you know how God responded to that. God will not share his glory. And you know what he does? He humbles Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he turns him into something short of an animal, and he becomes a resident in his own state park for seven years eating grass. It was, uh, it was a national embarrassment. They had to hide their king. Because let me tell you, if you've got a pride issue, and it's between you and God, God will always win, and he'll do whatever it takes to bring you to your knees so that you will see God and worship God for who he really is and don't think that pride was kind of Well, i'm so glad we don't have pride issues today you know that was back in the older times but we've really gone past that right i don't think so it is probably the number one issue in our world pride it is huge and pride pride is is deadly It twists and contorts your soul. You are never satisfied when pride drives your life. It makes you greedy. It makes you restless. Pride is what drives your inner appetites to do wickedness, to do the things that God despises because you will not submit to God. God is not the factor in your life. So pride literally destroys you. You're never satisfied, but God always addresses it. You see, for the proud one, guess what? His soul is not right within him. If you're finding your identity, security, purpose, stability, in anyone or anything but God, pride is likely driving your life. Your soul is not right with him. I don't care how many Bibles you have in your house, how many times you showed up in a church, what your background is, what your mama believed. If you are not yielding, trusting to God, by faith, you are likely living by pride. This verse is so critical. It's actually quoted three different times in the New Testament. And you're, you're here today, and I know that some of you are going through devastating circumstances. And you're like, how do you live when you've got the world falling apart around you? Whether you're looking at it internationally or nationally or locally or even personally, just the inner turmoil that's just tearing you up inside. How do you live Friends, we live by faith. Just like we saw last week. You have to learn how to take your troubles to God. You have to learn to talk to him, to trust him. You have to look to God's character and his promises. Look at the fact that he's eternal and he's holy and he's sovereign and he's faithful and he's pure. You look to God's character. You must seek him and his promises. Like Jesus said, I'm never going to leave you. I will never forsake you. If you want to live by faith, we do so by trusting in the character of God and his promises. And friends, you live by faith by taking God at his word. Sometimes God answers our prayers. And friends, sometimes he does not. And when he does not, it is because he wants us to live by faith. Everything that God wants us to know, he's revealed in his word. Now. There are few verses that have had such an impact on world history as this particular verse. We, if you want to just see the significance of this verse, you have to understand that what took place in the early 1500s with a man by the name of Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther, uh, he, was, he grew up in Germany within medieval Catholicism. He had heard enough of the law that, and the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that he knew he was a condemned sinner. And it, it really bothered him, so much so that he had great anguish in his soul. He wanted to pursue and have salvation, but he simply didn't know what to do. Because, you see, back in the medieval times, the glory of the gospel of God, that God that a man is justified by what God does through Christ, by you trusting in him, not by works, that was completely covered over. The The thought was the gospel was that you needed to do good works and sacrifice in order to please God. But you could never please God enough because you were such a miserable sinner. And so you had people in a system like Martin Luther that was just like going crazy over this whole concept that I can never please God. In fact, he has the point where he's angry at God. And so in Luther's day, just like today when the gospel is covered up, just like in much of Catholicism and many even Protestant churches, it's so covered up people don't even know what the gospel is. Luther decided I'd need to determine, he determined to seek his salvation. And so he entered an Augustinian monastery at Erfurt. And there he started studying the, the Bible, which was interesting because oftentimes they didn't get to studying the Bible until they actually spent some years in a monastery. He had a superior, which was a, a significant spiritual father, that led him to various passages in the Bible. And as Martin Luther is studying, he comes across this verse, Habakkuk 2.4, when he's studying Romans. It's one of the places it's quoted that the righteous or the just shall live by faith. He kept pondering it, but he just he couldn't grasp that in light of the system that he was in. He, he knew that it was different, but he lived in a system that kind of believed that in fastings and, you know, like self-beating, where you take a rope and beat yourself in the back while you're praying to try to sub- beat the flesh into submission, charity, good works, prayers, that this was the system which you please God. And yet he heard this verse and he kept thinking about it, the just shall live by faith. But he just couldn't reconcile it. In another period of his life, he is making a pilgrimage to Rome. After he crosses over the Alps, he becomes deathly ill. He actually goes into a monastery in Bologna, and these monks take care of him. And while he thinks he might be on his deathbed, this verse comes back to him, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And he keeps saying it over and over, and he's trying to understand it. He eventually gets to a place where he is well enough to make, finish his pilgrimage to Rome. So he goes off, he gets to Rome. And the reason that he's going to Rome, the capital, is because he wants to go to the Church of St. John Lateran's Basilica. This is the Pope's cathedral. All bishops in Catholicism have a cathedral. This is the Pope's St. John Lateran's, and he's going there because the Pope had said, "I will give you an indulgence if you will ascend these stairs that they have at St. John Lateran's." Now. If you're like, what's an indulgence? An indulgence is a release from punishment, either from some worldly punishment or punishment in purgatory, which is kind of a made-up system where you pay off sins that the Catholics developed. And you could buy or do some work of charity that would actually get you this indulgence or some sort of sacrifice. And so that's what he's here. The Catholic Church has said, if you do this, if you come here and you go up these steps, now they had two outer steps, which were rather ordinary, but the inner steps at St. John's Lateran's, they believed it had actually been miraculously transported from Jerusalem to Rome. And these particular steps, they said, were the steps used in Pilate's judgment hall. And you didn't just walk up the stairs. These particular stairs, you went on your knees and you said prayers to Jesus and Mary on each one of the 28 steps as you went up. There are also on these stairs, and in fact, you see this picture of what they look like. There they are still today. There are these spots, they, they, they said, was the blood of Jesus as Jesus went back and forth during his trial at Pilate's, uh, Pilate's Judgment Hall, and they are covered with glass. And so these pilgrims would be saying his prayers to Jesus and Mary. They come to these spots, and they kiss these spots, uh, kiss that glass, and they're making their way. The Pope said, if you do this, I will give you an indulgence. That's why Martin Luther's there. So he's going up there, he's wrestling with this, and then listen to this. This is what is told by Dr. Paul Luther in a manuscript that he wrote about what took place with his dad. Quote, he said, as he repeated his prayers on the ladder and staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind, the just shall live by faith. Thereupon, he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as the chief foundation of all his doctrine, this became the firestone for the Protestant Reformation. And in the words of Luther himself, when he writes about this, he said, "Before these words, speaking about Acts two four, these words broke upon my mind. I hated God and I was angry with Him because, not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of life, He still further increased our torture by the gospel. The gospel, as He understood it, that you had to perform works to please God. But then, but when." By the Spirit of God, I understood those words, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. And friends, that is the gospel. You and I are made right with God, not by our works, but by believing in the finished work of Christ, that he lived a perfect life, he was the perfect sacrifice for our sins, He died, he was buried, and he rose again. He is the only payment for my sins, and he is alive. He can spiritually empower us. When we believe by faith in him, then we're made right with God. And that is true today. You are either here doing it on your own, maybe even have a religious veneer about you, or you're trusting completely and absolutely in the person of Christ. And only when you're trusting in him, Can you truly have salvation? But friends, it's either going to be God dependency or self-sufficiency. And which is it for you? God dependency, the just shall live by faith, or self-sufficiency. Well, notice what the text says. For the Babylonians, they are prideful. And so he says in verse 5, Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man. So that he does not stay at home. And the Babylonians were known for just their high addiction to alcohol, especially wine. In fact, when, when this kingdom comes down, and that's what you're going to find out, that God is already prophesying that the Babylonians are going to be completely destroyed. They have this drunken orgy that's going on. And their city is literally taken over in one night. Because they were so inebriated, they thought that they were invincible. And the Medes and Persians conquered them in one night. That's why he's saying, furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man. You get drunk, you think you can do things that you simply can't. That's what took place for them. And he enlarges his appetite like Sheol, which is kind of considered the the place of the dead. And he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. And he's speaking about the Babylonians. They literally are taking over all these people. And God says, I'm going to judge them. And so you're going to find... And he's got this beginning in verse 6. There are these five woes that are going to come upon Babylon. And what they do is they show the misery of a person who's trying to live life without God or the misery of a country that is trying to live life without God. Now, why is it essential that you and I live by faith and learn to do so? Because apart from learning to live by faith, we cannot have relationship with God. But let me also tell you this. If we do not learn how to live by faith, we will inevitably face the perils of pride. And let me just show you, as we finish these verses here, the prideful approach of seeking to live life without God. Let me show you what it leads to. The first thing it's going to lead to is greed and extortion. Verse 6, he says, Will not all these take a big taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his? For how long? and makes himself rich with loans. And what he's talking about here is, you know what pride will lead to? It leads to greed and extortion. That's exactly what the Babylonians did. And God says, you know what? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Yeah, right now you're taking everybody over. But shortly, in fact, it's 539 B.C., so from between 586 B.C. to 539 B.C., you got the Babylonian reign. But thirty nine BC, God says, guess what? Your creditors are going to take you over. And notice what else he says to them. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. God says, I see and I care. And your sins will be judged because God is upholding justice in the universe. Let me show you something else that... A prideful approach to seeking life without God leads to it leads to explota- exploitation and injustice. Look at verse nine and through eleven. He says, "Woe! This is a divine judgment. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high to be delivered from the hand of calamity." And that's exactly what the Babylonians did. They built this huge wall around their city. It had a hundred bronze gates. The wall was so thick that Herodotus says that you could drive a four-horse chariot along the wall on top of it. It's a massive wall. And they did this because Nebuchadnezzar, even to his own inscriptions, which we have found, actually thought that he had an impenetrable kingdom, that he could never be destroyed. And his wall was proof of that. He says, verse 10, You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you were sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. He's saying you've built your kingdom by exploiting others. And your pride is going to be your undoing. You guys ever have these like fire ants at your house or are they just at mine? You got them, too? They're just joyful. It was one of the great discoveries when I moved here to Texas. To find out these little critters, man, they, they're, they're nasty, man. They hurt. And they create all sorts of bodily problems. Once they bite you, I had, one time my leg was so swollen, I even called my doctor said, is there something I need to do about that? Ah, he'll be fine in a few days. like, okay. All right, these fire ants. And so I'm like, I'm going to figure out how to kill these ants, all right? Okay? I know if, if you're an ant lover, I'm sorry, but just don't listen to me for 30 seconds. And I have found the product, okay? It's this little orthene. It smells nasty. I keep it outside. Don't keep it in your garage. It smells really nasty. But you spray this little white powder. It looks like powdered sugar. And I think they think it is. And you put it on their little uh, little mound. And they go and they take that because they think that's food. And you know what? a couple hours, guess what? The ants are gone. I don't know what happened. They're just dead or they're gone. You see, the ants, though, they think that oh, this is good. This is food. This is going to help build our little empire as we're taking over Grant's yard here. In actuality, it leads to their death and their undoing. That's what God is saying here. You stole all these things, you ravaged all these people, but it's going to become your undoing. Let me give you another thing that when you try to live life apart from God, what pride does, it leads to treachery and murder. Look at verse 12 Woe to him who builds a city without bloodshed and founds a town with violence. That's how you operate. He says, verse 13, is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies, Yahweh, who's in control of the heavenly armies, that people's toil for fire, you're, what you're doing is eventually going to be burned and nations grow weary for nothing. And so that the people would have great hope. Here's one of the great verses in the Bible. I've got it underlined. Verse 14. You need to know this. Babylon, you look like you're taking over the world and you're and you'll, you'll never satiate your desire for power and for owning people? Let me tell you, the day is coming, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God says this, one day, my glory, it will not just fill the temple. Many of the prophets spoke because God wants it crystal clear in every believer's mind. One day, my glory, my majesty, the, my personhood will be completely overwhelmed the world. In fact, it's actually written about, and you find it in Revelation chapter 20, in the millennial kingdom, Christ reigns as king, and the entire world recognizes, submits, and worship him. worships him. He's saying, one day, Babylon, you're soon to pass. Even if there is a resurgence, and there is in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, this resurgence of this Babylonian empire, it's a religious, economic, political structure, it is crushed by Christ who comes from heaven and establishes his kingdom on the earth so that this verse will be fulfilled. But what you're doing, it leads to treachery and murder because of your pride. And let me just, by the way, tell you, verse 14 is super important. Do you know why you are on this earth You better, otherwise this is a rather aimless uh, journey for you, isn't it? You and I are on this earth for the glory of God. He seeks to extol himself through the lives of his people. We're just merely a present-day expression of what one day is going to cover the world of people worshiping, honoring God. We're not finding our sense of stability and significance in a political system, not in our possessions, not in our power, not in things that we've received. We find our identity, purpose, peace in Christ, in God and his glory. And if you're living for something other than that, you're living a very frustrating existence because you were meant for the exaltation of God in your jobs, which happens to be your ministry, in your homes, in our church. Let me show you something else that takes place. If pride is driving you and you're trying to live life without God, verses 15 through 17, it leads to indignity and violence. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. Now, what's taking place here, when, when the Bible refers to people looking upon nakedness, it's usually a, a people group, like a nation. It has, it's not the idea that they're actually seeing them naked, although the Babylonians sometimes stripped, especially kings, put them in cages and turned them into public spectacles. But what they would do is is, it's the idea that you as a nation are going to be completely humiliated. And that's what they did. You mix your venom. You humiliate people. And he says, verse 16, you will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. Just like you made people drink of your wrath, God says, my cup is coming, my cup of judgment. If you don't turn and repent, if you don't trust me by faith, you will face my wrath because I am fully against pride. And he says in verse 17, for the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. Lebanon was this area to the north of Israel. They had these amazing cedars. Even the temple was built with these cedars. It was represented like the strength of the earth. The Babylonians completely ravaged that. They destroyed the beasts, verse 17. You see that? They terrified them. And because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants, God says, because you ravaged the land and my people. In fact, do you even see that God's concerned about the trees and the beasts God sees it all, and he says, I'm going to bring you to judgment. You will face my wrath. Now, one other really interesting note here about what pride leads to. You may not think of this because when you look at all these others, it's all about what the Babylonians are doing or what we think we can do. But let me tell you what pride will drive you to. It will drive you to idolatry. Something or someone else will fill the place of God. And notice verse 18. That's what he addresses. What profit is the idol when the its maker has carved it or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Now, why would they fashion an idol? I mean, you got it all, right? Because man knows there's a lot of things outside of their control. And see, if you don't, do not submit and yield to the one true God, you don't trust him by faith then you're going to find something to fill that. And so literally, you find that they're going to take wood and stones, they're going to put metal on it, like silver or gold or bronze, they're going to decorate it, and they'll literally bow down and worship it. They will actually give themselves to it because they know there's things in life they can't control. And if you will not fill your life with the one true God, I tell you that God-shaped vacuum will be filled with something or someone else. And it's going to be idolatry. And he says, verse 19, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! To a mute stone, arise! And that is your teacher? Really? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. An idol is any person, power, spirit that you are trusting in for satisfaction, security, strength. And before you go, oh, I'm not an idolater, I need to ask you to make sure that you actually understand what you're saying. What is your answer to these questions? Who do you thank when things go well? Who, who, who are you giving credit to? Um, to whom do you look to when things go badly? Had a bad day or a bad week? Yeah, mine wasn't really stellar. How was yours? Who do you go to? What is your source of strength and security? Where is it? Whatever is coming to your mind, if it's not God, it's probably your idol. Where do you gain your sense of worth in this world? Why do you have worth? And what are you striving to achieve in life and why? The answer to those questions will tell you whether it's the one true God you're worshiping by faith or perhaps you've slipped into idolatry. Well, God goes through this litany of their military might and their power and then finally it's as if the divine gavel hits God's justice bench and he says, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple and let all the earth be silent before him. All this activity, all of your pride running rampant, all of this idolatry, I mean, most of the world is worshiping someone or something other than God and God just says, stop, silence. And everybody is going to be filled with rapt attention because the one true God is saying, I am going to bring justice upon this earth. Friends, this chapter is so powerful because it's literally telling us how to live. We live by faith in God, and it's alerting us to any other path beside him, which is specifically the path of pride. In the Sacred Museum of the Vatican, there is a 16th century sculpture by this guy by the name of Johann Lorenzo Bernini. It's called Habakkuk and the Angel. In this masterpiece, Habakkuk is walking and moving forward. He's he's got some, carrying his pack over his uh, on his bag this bag over his shoulder. He's carrying it. He's moving forward, and this angel literally is grabbing his hair and forcing and yanking his head upward. And the idea is that he has Habakkuk has to see life from heaven's perspective, not just moving on in this earth. And this is so apropos for us, you and I. If we're not looking to God, we're fixated upon the things that are happening here. And that is not the life of faith. And there may be some of you, you're kind of plowing along life without God. And today God has reached down and grabbed your head, your hair, whatever you got left of it, some of you guys, and he's yanking you up and he's having you look to me. For like it says, behold, as for the proud one, His soul is not right within him, verse 4. But the righteous will live by his faith. We will either live by faith or we will face the perils of pride. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing chapter of the Bible. I would imagine that our theology is deficient if we've never spent time in this chapter. And you're teaching us things about yourself that we would never know had we not taken some time to look at the pages of Scripture, sometimes the unnoticed pages of Scripture. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that is on the path of pride, but they finally understand that you will judge pride and pride will lead to their undoing, that they will pray with me and say, God, I turn from my sin and I trust Christ as the payment of my, for my sin and as the Lord of my life. And Lord, for all of us, would you give us a heavenly perspective? Would you keep our heart fixed upon Jesus? When, our, when we don't desire you like it happens, God, we plead and ask that you change our desires, that we would walk and live by faith, that you would be glorified in our lives, in our schools, in our homes, in our community, even this world. We ask this, Lord, for your majesty, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.